This morning, I know we're gearing up. Last Sunday, you weren't here. And last Sunday, normally, you would have had received communion. And so this morning, we're going to receive communion. But I want to tell a little bit of a story that's actually somewhat your story. Uh, it's my story. It's, and it's a couple of stories kind of woven in together that will lead us into the place of communion. And uh, the story is really the story of Israel of how the Lord chose them. I love even the worship this morning. Thank you so much. It's it's awesome. But even the songs really lead into where I feel we want to go this morning because there's there's so much when we consider communion. And I don't know how many of you really stop to consider or think about where our communion is rooted, how we're rooted in. Because it is a communion is something that we really consider as more of a New, New Testament reality. It's something where we're invited to continue to partake of, uh, and yet it's actually rooted in something that is, is uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years older, uh, rooted back in Exodus chapter 12, rooted in Passover. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about Passover, talk to you about communion. So for example, and this all weaves really into the Advent season, because of course when we think of the Advent, we think of the first Advent, we think of the second Advent, Advent really is like the coming And so we had the first coming of Jesus about 2,000 years ago. We got the second coming that we're longing for. And if we dig into the communion a little bit deeper, we begin to see that uh, these comings of the Lord, you know, the first and the second, which, by the way, was, you know, the Jewish people of the day didn't, they weren't thinking, the the, the scholars of the day weren't imagining that Jesus or that the Messiah would come twice. But he did come twice. And, uh, and he really made that clear and gave some emphasis to why he would come twice, even in the communion and even in the Passover. And so when you and I partake of communion, uh, we, hi there, we, take, we partake of it. He's got a co-share with me today. Um, we partake of it in, in the sense that we remember the body and the blood of the Lord, but do we remember or do we, are we aware of some of the deeper things? For example, the fact is, is that in the Passover, there's not just one cup, there's four cups. How many of you knew that? You know, for those of you that say, hey, I want to dig into the Passover Seder, we want to actually participate in the annual celebration, which we're not commanded to really as the Gentile church. It's the Jewish people that were commanded to partake of the Passover on an annual basis, and, uh, and I've, I've done it, uh, I didn't do it this past year, but I really try to do it. We've led Passovers when we were in Stratford, when we were in Toronto, because I believe it's a rehearsal so that we can really dig into what's to come, so that when, the more we rehearse this, uh, this Passover feast, as well as some of the other feasts of the Lord, we're not going to be caught unprepared or unaware when the Lord comes back and really begins to unveil the greater things that he's got prepared for us. And so today we're going to talk about some stories. We're going to talk about the story of Israel. We're going to talk about your story, my story, and the story of what is yet to unfold all in the context of these things. Now, communion is a fascinating reality. I like to call communion the meal that heals, you know, because we can partake and there's healing in the body and the blood of Jesus, and it's beautiful. And I love the fact that the blood of Jesus Christ is the great equalizer in our culture and in our society, which means that regardless of where you came from in your past, regardless of the color of your skin, your socioeconomic status, the nation you were born in, you know, whether you had one mother, one father, single parent family, the blood of Jesus is the great equalizer. Isn't that awesome? You know, he, he brings equal value to everybody through his blood. And of course, we all have equal value because we're created in the image of, of, uh, of God. And so it's, 
It's absolutely awesome. Now, it's, uh, it's important that we recognize that none of us can ever be clean enough of our own ability, of our own lifestyle to be able to partake in communion. We partake in communion because the blood of Jesus was shed, because he made us worthy. And it's not for any merit or any righteousness that I carry or that you carry. And so when we partake, we remind ourselves of, uh, of this reality, that he has given us great value. We, we have the ability to partake because of the merit that he carries. And it's fascinating because scripture, even in 1 Corinthians 11, talks to or speaks to the reality that not everybody should be partaking of communion. Communion is one of those things that we want to judge the body rightly, which means we judge the body of Jesus Christ, we recognize in our relationship with the Lord, but that body is not just vertical, it's horizontal. And so there's something about the body of Christ or the church or the believers, sons and daughters of God, that we can look at one another and we really deal with any issues that might keep us apart. Does anybody here have any issues with anybody else here? Just, just kidding. Oh, somebody put their hand up at the back. Okay. We won't tell you who. And so really, it's an opportunity for us to address the issues. It's like saying we don't want to keep uh, any schism or any division relationally in this horizontal walk because we want to judge the body of Christ rightly. We want to ensure that there's a place of the, the blood that was shed for us is actually still working, is still powerful enough that we can walk in humility and walk in forgiveness and begin to address the issues. So that when we come to the, to the Lord's Supper, when we come to the table, we partake realizing that the worthiness is not ours, but it's His that has been made right within us. And yet this same meal that, that can really advance us if our hearts are right before God can actually harm us if they're not which is the irony here. You know, the presence of God that brings you and I peace can actually irritate other people around us. Isn't that something? It's like a two-edged sword, right? It can be a great blessing, but it can actually bring a lot of harm. And so could it be that when we partake of communion that many people partake of it and it just becomes a religious ritual, but we don't really stop to remember why we're partaking. We don't stop to appreciate and value what the Lord has done for us as we partake of it. And so I, this morning, I want to remind us of the great power that is available. I want to remind us of the healing that we have access to and the, the forgiveness and the provision and, and all those things. You know, in, in the kingdom of God, it's all available. And I don't want it reduced just to a, a religious act and a religious ritual. That's my heart. And so we want to remember, as I said earlier, that communion is actually rooted in Passover. And, and in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, verses 6 to 7, the scripture talks about four I wills. That's actually, there's five there, but I think the last two are kind of um, fit together. And we're going to talk about that, and I'm going to read to you uh, Exodus chapter 6, 6 and 7. And this is what the Lord is speaking to Moses and saying, Moses, I want you to tell the children of Israel. He says, say therefore to the sons of Israel, I'm the Lord, and number one, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from their bondage. And I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then I will take you for my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I'm the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so that's actually a strong foundation for Passover and for communion. 
But we wouldn't know it because it talks about four wheels and the Passover has four cups. And so the four cups, each cup correlates to, the, to each I will. And so now we're going to dig into it a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's important to have a framework and a context for why we're doing it. And so the first cup is known in the Passover as the cup of remembrance. And we remember, you know, what, what, the, what Exodus 6, 6 says is, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And so we remember even today, years later, do you remember where the Lord saved you from? You know, do we remember what life was like before Jesus? Do you remember some of the pain and the horror and the sorrow and the suffering that you got? And, and I know coming to Christ doesn't solve all your problems, but coming to Christ gives you strength and a partnership with the Holy Spirit to walk through them and to gain victory in the midst of them. And so what, what Exodus 6, 6 is saying is, I'll bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Well, that word burdens could also be translated as the tolerance of the Egyptians. And you and I, and even those that don't yet know Jesus in our midst, in your families, maybe your parents, brothers, sisters, children, friends at work, so on, they, we tolerate the place of the Egyptians within us. We tolerate the place of sin. Have you ever tolerated the sin in your life? Do you still tolerate the sin in your life? Do we tolerate the stuff that, yeah, you know, yeah, the, I mean, the internet's right there, and yeah, I stopped and I looked at that porn the other night again, but everybody does it, so it's okay. You know, after all, even pastors, up to 75% of pastors struggle with pornography, so if they do it, it must be okay for me. As an example, okay? I mean, what other things do we tolerate? Do we tolerate the fact that I actually have a bit of a sore knee or a sore back, and we tolerate, well, I can live with it, it's okay. But the Moravian call, when the Moravian missionaries, there, there was a couple of missionaries, the story goes, that sold themselves into slavery to go into the Caribbean nations because there was no witness and no gospel of Jesus Christ to the slavery, to the, to the people that were slaves. And their family would say, why would you sell yourself into slavery? And as they would leave in the, in the boat, departing for the Caribbean, they, they shouted out that the Lamb of God would receive the reward of his sufferings. Why would they do that? Because they no longer wanted to tolerate the sin that was in our lives. They no longer wanted to tolerate. Even in my body, I don't want to tolerate sickness. Jesus died so that we could be sozoed. That word sozo is a Greek word, but it means complete restoration, healing and restoration in our spirit, in our soul, and in our body. So if you're cranky when you get up in the morning, or you're miserable to your spouse or your kids, you're actually tolerating a little bit of Egypt in your life. And so the Lamb of God to, reward the, to receive the reward of His suffering means that you actually have to kind of pull up the socks, pull up your britches, and say, I'm going to deal with my issues. And so, what the Lord did is, in the case of Israel, they were actually in slavery for 430 years, and after a few hundred years, you get so caught up in slavery that it's in your blood and it's in your generation, and there's actually not even a desire, you don't even think, you don't know what it's like to not be in slavery, because slavery has so, you know, ingrained every cell of your being. And so, in order to break free from the place of slavery... The Lord actually put a cry in their hearts to say, I've had enough. I don't want to live this way anymore. And isn't that the way most of us came to Christ? 
We were slave, enslaved to sin. Sin had us captive. We didn't have sin, sin had us. It's like saying, you know, it's not a big deal. I have no problem if people want to have a beer or have a glass of wine. The issue is, is when does the wine and the beer have you rather than you have it? When does that, you know, opportunity, I mean, you can, it's legal now. We can have marijuana. Well, when does the marijuana have you rather than you have the marijuana? Not all things. All things may be permissible. All things may not be beneficial. And so where is it that you actually can rise above so that you're the head and not the tail above and not beneath, lend to the nations and not have to borrow? Is your goal just to be like everybody around you or is your goal to be like Christ? Husbands, do we love our wives like Christ loved the church or do we love them as well as the average citizen around you loves them? You know, and, and so there's this tolerance for the Egyptian lifestyle. There's the tolerance for slavery. And the Lord begins out of his own initiative because he's an initiator, he puts a cry in our hearts and says, I actually want more for you. I didn't die so that you would live mediocre lives. I didn't shed my blood so that you would live in a place of, you know, acceptability and just okay. And so he actually has so much more for you. So it starts with this first cup. I will bring you out from under the tolerance or the burdens of the Egyptians. He's actually calling a people apart. You know, come apart from everything before you come apart, you know, get apart, just get out. And so the people that had been, they, they learned, the, the Israelites began to hate the bondage and hate the slavery that they were in, and they began to cry out for, for freedom and for release from their slavery. And that's important because God actually wants you and I to cry out so that he can begin to respond to your prayer and to the cry of your heart. And so my question to you right now is, is what are you crying out for? What is it that's in your life that is not on earth as it is in heaven? Right. That we can begin to begin to declare with a voice to say, God, I want more. You know, and so they had that anguish cry. The Israelites began to cry out. And yet, even in their cry, they were still the legal property of the Pharaoh. Because back in the Garden of Eden, Adam actually committed high treason against God and actually sold himself, you know, to the devil, essentially. And so until people are are set free, and this is, this is a future cup, but until we're set free and, and, and receive Christ into our hearts, we actually are the property of the devil. We're the property of the enemy. And we sang the songs this morning, you know, that he, before, we even, before, I, I, before I even knew how to cry out, God put the cry in my heart, right? Romans 5 verse 8, when I was still in my sin, Christ died for me. It's a beautiful reality. And so this first cup in the Passover is called the cup of remembrance. We remember from whence we've come. And every year, the Jewish people get together, the religious Jews, and they partake of Passover, and they remember their slavery. I think it's actually a healthy thing to do. We're not mandated, but I think it's a healthy thing for us to celebrate Passover and say, where did you come from? What has God delivered you from? What has he saved you from? So the second cup of, is, is actually called the, the cup of deliverance. And it's very powerful because Exodus 6.6, 6, in the second part, the second I will, says, I will deliver you from their bondage. And so it's one thing to have an anguish cry to say, I hate the slavery, I hate the sin in my life. You know, I, I, I used to, I, I remember living in Listowel, Ontario years ago as a banker with the Royal Bank of Canada. My wife and I were married a short time and I came really from a deep spirit of poverty in my life. My wife, every year, her father, because he had actually taken the government of Canada to the Supreme, like the CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, to the Supreme Court of Canada and won. 
it was a real estate case dealing with real estate and being a farmer and tax deductions. And so he won. So every year, you know, a new Cadillac, big stogie. So here's me with the spirit of poverty and a lot of poverty in my background. I get married to my wife, and guess what happens when we get married? Two complete ideologies. And so I remember, as a banker, working with money, isn't God ironic, getting down into my basement because we had a trap door in the home we rented at the time and crying out saying, I hate money. Now, I really didn't hate money. I repented of that. But I don't want money to have me. I want to have money. You understand? There's a difference. It can't enslave me. But the, really, the reality is, is I hated what it did to me. I hated the sin that it began to reveal in my heart because God doesn't have a spirit of poverty. And so that's what that was about. But it wasn't enough for me to just have that anguish cry. I needed deliverance. I needed freedom. I needed to be set free. So the second I am, is, or the second I will, is I will deliver you from their bondage. And what happened is we know the story is, is that, you know, as they cried out, God sent a deliverer and Moses began to really begin to contend and Moses was in complete um, relationship and obedience to what the Lord was saying to him. But the way out of Egypt for the Israelites that were caught in slavery was because they put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts and that way when the angel of death came, they pat, the angel of death passed over their door and over their household because they'd applied the blood, of which of course was a symbol for 1,500 or so years later when Jesus Christ died on a cross, and therefore the angel of death passes over us, which means you and I have the place of freedom. So it's their story, but it's our story. And we begin to get the place of deliverance. There is a way of deliverance from our sinful lifestyle. And when we partake, we remind ourselves of this place of deliverance. And not only were they delivered after 430 years of slavery, they actually plundered the Egyptians. Their gold and their silver they took out. And Psalm 105, verse 37 says, He bought them out, brought them out with silver and gold, and there was none feeble among his tribes, or there was no one who stumbled, which means there was no sickness. Church, I believe that the Lamb of God would receive the reward of his suffering means that we need to be healed. We need to walk in that healing, and sometimes we need to contend for it. You know, the blood heals our bodies. And so, yet the healing and redemption isn't complete, even for those Israelites that were in slavery, and it's not complete for you and I unless we are brought to somebody and replaced with a new identity. Because we've got to get that slavery identity out of us. We have to get, we can flee out of Egypt, we can flee out of the world system, but is the world system still in you? And so we go through this long period that we're in right now, which is this period of sanctification. It's a, necessary, it's a necessary work in our hearts and lives because we've got to be sanctified. My, my desire is to be completely Christ-like. Whether I'm in the public eye or in the private eye, whether I'm alone with the Lord and my computer, whether I'm alone with my family, whoever I'm with, I want to be the same person letting Christ work in me the, the hope of glory. And so we need this cup of deliverance. We need to be set free. We need Egypt out of us as well. Now the third cup of, is called the cup of redemption. And Exodus 6.6 6 declares, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Now in Hebrew, that word redeem actually means to buy back. I will buy back. Remember in the beginning, Adam sold the birthright. He basically sold himself to the enemy. He committed treason against the Lord, and so the Lord had no choice but to remove him because he disobeyed and dishonored. Satan actually took the keys of hell and death. Jesus took them back again. 
2,000 years ago. We have the victory. It has been legal. But what he did is he redeemed us. And so when his blood was shed on the cross, there was a redemption that took place that you and I were bought back. When in the Passover we partake of that third cup of communion, it means that we've we break the power of that old covenant. We break the power of the enemy's grips over our lives through death so that Israel or we can become God's covenant people once again. You know, in the, old, in, in the story of Israel, they actually crossed over the Red Sea. Peter talks about it even as through baptism you're saved. Well, what happened was is that the old covenant, really the old ownership under Pharaoh had to be broken. How does covenant get broken? How does marriage covenant get broken when you do a wedding? It's until what do we part? Until death do us part. Well, the same thing, Pharaoh died. The Egyptians died. There was a breaking of the covenant they'd had. In our case, who died that you and I could be bought back? Jesus died. So there's a new covenant in his blood that we enter into. And so there's a redemption that we have in that point in time. Peter declares, the Apostle Peter, knowing that you were not redeemed or you were not bought back with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Guys, it's a sin nature. It goes deep. We got it from our parents and they got it from theirs and it's generations old. But we were bought back or redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You know, the Hebrews have this... this um, it's part of their culture. It's part of uh, the way they operate, and you've probably heard of it, but it's called a kinsman redeemer. Anybody heard of a kinsman redeemer? And in, in the Hebrew, the concept of a redeemer is called a goel, also known as the kinsman redeemer. Every family or every tribe had one. The kinsman redeemer would go to the enemy's camp or to the, per to the person who had suffered a crime at the hand of another, or maybe a misfortune like Naomi did in the book of Ruth, and they would pipe pay a redemption price to buy them back. And so what we know and what we remember is Boaz, as the kinsman redeemer, paid the redemption price so that Ruth could be brought back and bought into the fold because Ruth really had consecrated herself fully to Naomi. Well, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. There was a misfortune that had happened to us as people, as humanity. We lost our way in the garden you know, almost 6,000 years ago, or however long that was. And now we've been bought back by the blood of Jesus. He is our kinsman redeemer, paying a price so that we could be restored. And so this third cup of redemption is also where they pass through the waters of the Red Sea, where there's a transfer from one kingdom to another. We're transferred from the kingdom that is run by a taskmaster to the kingdom that is run by a loving redeemer. Isn't it awesome? When we partake of communion, we remind ourselves. Communion reminds us of belonging. It reminds us who we belong to. We belong to Jesus. I am no longer my own. I have been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians states. Paul declares that twice. By the way, do you know what your value is? Do you know you, the price that has been paid for you determines your value? How many of you feel valuable this morning? How many of you feel like you're the cat's meow? You know, you're the Lord's, the love of his life. Because it's important you feel valuable because the price paid for you was the blood of the only begotten Son of the Father, stain, without stain, without blemish, without spot or wrinkle. That determines how important and how valuable you are to Him. 
It determines, you know, it, it's, it's the price tag that he, he, the Lord himself felt that was good value. I will give the blood of my son so that I could buy you back. It's incredible. And so, I want us now to, to just shift this to Luke, to the book of Luke 22. It's also very similar in Matthew, very similar in Mark. But in Luke 22, fast forwarding to Jesus, when he's about to partake of this last supper, or this last Passover before he dies. And he says this to his disciples. I have earnestly desired, which means I have longed for, I have coveted, I've set my heart upon, or even the word can be translated lusted. I have, you know, that's what Jesus, I have lusted, I have desired to partake or to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom, was what, what Matthew declares. I want to read that to you from the Passion Translation, which is the Aramaic. Luke twenty-two fifteen. Jesus told them, I have longed with passion and desire to eat this Passover lamb with you before I endure my sufferings. I promise you that the next time we eat this, we will be together in the banquet of God's kingdom realm. And then he raised the cup in the Aramaic. This is the Passion Translation still. He gave thanks to God and he said to them, take this and pass it on to one another and drink. I promise you that the next time we drink this wine, we will be together in the feast of God's kingdom realm. And so there's a deep, passionate desire in Jesus' heart just before he dies that this Passover would be different from every other Passover that he'd partaken of before with his disciples in his 33 years of life. Why was there fervent desire in the heart of Jesus? Why fervent desire? Because it was an appointment that he carried in his heart for a long time. In Leviticus 23, the feasts, the seven feasts, four spring, three fall. Yeah. Um, they're called moeds. They're called appointments. It's the appointment of the Lord. So what made this Passover different from every other Passover? Because Jesus, it said, took the cup after supper. And the cup taken after supper in the Passover service was the third cup out of the four. It's the one really that when we take communion in the 21st century, it's the one really that we celebrate. It's the one that we partake of, but we don't fully understand the full value behind it. It's the cup of redemption. And so this time, though, Jesus did something different because he declared this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Never before in the Passover had they declared that there's a new covenant. He's saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then he began to talk a form of language that you and I with Gentile mindsets probably wouldn't get. But the Jewish people of that day knew the Jewish idioms or the Jewish phrases, and they got it. It was wedding language. Jesus started talking wedding language. He essentially took this cup that was a cup of redemption, and he turned it into a betrothal cup. And he started using wedding language that only a bridegroom would use. And to really have a proper understanding, I want to give you eight points of a Jewish wedding that I think will help us understand this because the Jewish wedding feast is actually, you know, you see bits and pieces of it throughout Scripture, although there's never a direct reference to the Jewish wedding. And so this is fascinating because I believe 
My heart and my hope in this is that your hearts would become alive. That as we partake, we actually remember not only the first time, His first advent, we look ahead to the fact that He's coming again. And He's coming for a glorious purpose. And so the eight points of a Jewish wedding. Number one, the father chooses a bride for his son. The father chooses a bride. Number two, the son goes to the bride's house. He takes with him a skin of wine and a sum of money. That sum of money is called a bridal price or a mohar in their language. Number three, if the bride agrees to the proposal that the bridegroom is going to come and bring, she drinks the cup of wine with the bridegroom. Okay? The fourth thing, then a legal contract is come, comes out and it's signed. It's called a ketubah, and the price for the bride is paid. There's a bridal price. I have a daughter that's scheduled to get married in May. I was telling my son-in-law I'd like to go back to the Jewish way of doing things rather than our Canadian, you know, where the father of the bride pays up. I'm like, wait a second, give me the bridal price. What's she worth to you? <clears throat> but there's a price that has to be paid. You understand that, don't you? You had three daughters yourself, right? Three. Two. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, two of each. Sorry, okay. Bless you. You got, you got four daughters. You got two, you know, daughter-in-laws. There you go. So the price for the bride is paid when they pull out the kachuba, when they drink the wine. He leaves a gift for the bride as a promise of his return for her. And now they're legally married and they would require a divorce to annul that, you know, the signature of, of uh, you know, signing this ketubah, this legal contract. They're considered legal, legally married, but he's going to go away. Why is he going to go away? He needs to go away, usually for about a year, because he's going to build a bridal chamber, also known as a hoopah, to take her to upon his return. So he's going away, and in the same way that the, the, um, the initial contract and the proposal takes place at the bride's house, the actual wedding, or the place that he's going to take her to, and the fourth cup is going to be drunk at the groom's house, or drank, depending on where you come from. Uh, and so the groom goes away usually for about a year because he's going to build a, bride, a bridal chamber onto his father's house. Now noteworthy, when the bridegroom, you know, the question is, when is he going to return? Because you don't know when the bridegroom will return. Therefore, no man knows the day or the hour, only the father, because you don't know. And so when, point seven, when the father has inspected the hoopah or inspected the bridal chamber and it meets his specifications, a shofar is blown, so like a trumpet, blows the shofar, and the bridegroom comes with four men carrying this, it's called a palanquin, or it's like a little chariot, on their shoulders, and they're going to collect the bride. They begin the procession to the bride's house, and they announce this announcement, Behold, the bridegroom's coming, or the bridegroom cometh, according to your King James. And so the bridegroom is known in the Jewish culture as a thief in the night. And when he arrives, he usually arrives at the bride's house around midnight when the father has said go. And he, what he does is he comes to abduct or to kidnap the bride. He then carries her to his prepared bridal chamber. So it's a procession. You know, they come, they go again. He carries her to the prepared bridal chamber and then they drink another cup of wine with her, the two together, and it's called the cup of consummation. 
So that's the fourth cup. And then, try to picture this one, or maybe not, because it's, we're, you know, we're physical frame, it's, it's the unseen realm, there's a, there's a reality, and I don't, I don't know. But anyway, they go to consummate the marriage for seven days, okay? Oh joy, oh bliss. And it will be joy and bliss. It's going to be amazing. And so the point in all this is that the two cups that relate to the Jewish, the ancient Jewish wedding, really carry the significance of the third and fourth cup of the Passover when Jesus said, this is the new covenant, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. So there's a, suddenly that third cup is no longer, it is still the cup of redemption because it reminds us that we've been bought back, but Jesus is fully buying us for a purpose, and the third cup becomes the cup of betrothal, the fourth cup becomes the cup of of consummation. And so, in the context, Jesus takes that third cup for the disciples to see and to partake of together, but he says, I'm not going to drink of this fourth cup with you guys. We're going to delay the drinking of this fourth cup until we drink it again anew with you in my Father's kingdom. So do you see the bridal reality to this? What's he doing? What, what has just taken place here? Well, Let's read a little bit more because John chapter 13 is the Passover service. It's also where he washed the feet of his disciples. And then in chapter, chapter 14 of John, verse 2 to 3, he says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It's wedding language. And we just think about our mansions but he's actually building a place under the Father's house. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. What are we to remember when we receive communion? We are to remember, among the other three things, we're to remember that he put a cry in our heart, that he delivered us from our captivity, that he gave us a desire to no longer tolerate the sin in our life. We are to remember that he delivered us and that we cooperate with him through this process of sanctification in the cup of deliverance. We are to remember that we've been redeemed, we've been bought back by his blood so that we're no longer slaves. We actually become sons and daughters and then we become priests to the Lord as we minister to him, as we get healed up. And we are to remember that there's a fourth cup coming. We are to remember that we've been betrothed to the Lord. That there's this cry, there's this desire of a bridegroom longing for his bride. Men, how far back can you remember? For those of you that haven't been married long. But do you remember, especially if you wanted to honor the biblical means of how we go about doing things, that you, you wait for the place of consummation. You long for the desire of your bride. You long for the, the wedding. I remember Patricia and I, my wife, and I think you know my wife, most of you do anyway, she's been here. And I remember that we really felt the Lord, we got engaged in January of 1989. And then as we're praying, Lord, when should we get married? And I'm thinking a few months maybe. And it's like we just felt, no, it's June of 1990. It's like, you've got to be kidding, a year and a half. Right? It's like, no way. But, you know, you begin to, because I was living in, a, I was a banker in Aurelia, and she was a student at, a nursing student in London, Ontario, at the university there. But do you remember the longing and the desire of your heart? Do you remember it? I believe this is the same. There's a longing. Adam, in the garden, you know, he, he noticed that the animals, there was two of everything. He didn't have a helpmate. He didn't have somebody that he could have come alongside. He didn't have a companion. He didn't have an equal. 
And he longed for it. Well, it's the same thing. This is the last Adam. And he himself is longing and looking for a bride that he can rule and reign on the planet with. And so it was not okay with him that you would live in the place of slavery. He didn't, by the way, he didn't just save you so that you could escape hell. I hope you know that. Like, I'm fully in favor of the fact that we need to go into the city and the highways and the byways and we need to preach the gospel so that we can plunder hell and populate heaven. And by the way, God bless Reinhard Bonnke, who's with Jesus now. 79 million souls, 79 years old. So why don't we just all go for a million for the rest of our lives, a million a year. Right? It's available. We saw it. He did it. But it's not just so that we escape hell. The, the reason you've been saved is so that you can be so sanctified, set free, delivered, working out your salvation with fear and trembling so that in that day you begin to gaze on the face who loves you and desired you knowing that he holds the fourth cup of, that one day he holds the third cup of betrothal, one day saying there's a cup of consummation coming. I have eagerly, passionately, wholeheartedly desired to partake of this cup with you in my father's kingdom. It is the desire of a bridegroom for a bride and men and women, we are together the bride of Christ. It is not a sexual reality. It is this reality of ruling and reigning with him in the age to come as earth looks just like heaven. And as we're faithful to pursue him, we're faithful to love him, we're faithful to deal with the issues, the sin issues of our lives. That if you, you know, if sin has you, we got to do something about it. So God, if you put a passion in my heart to get saved, you can put a passion in my heart to be the bride. You can put a passion in my heart to long for you. Do you remember that the disciples of John came up to Jesus and they said, why is it that your disciples aren't fasting, that the disciples of the Pharisees and John's disciples, we fast, why don't they fast? And Jesus said, you can't fast when the bridegroom is with you. But when the bridegroom goes away, then you will fast. Do you know why we fast, church? And I would encourage you to fast if you don't fast. I think we fast not just... You know, because it's a religious ritual like communion has been for a lot of us. We fast because it begins to put a desire in our hearts that says there's a bridegroom coming. And I need to prepare my heart. I must make myself ready. You know, the ultimate shame for a bridegroom when he comes to abduct or kidnap his bride on that day that no man knows the day or the hour except the father, the ultimate shame and slap in the face for a bridegroom is if the bride does not prepare herself. If she will not make herself ready on that day, it's been said, I haven't fully studied it, it's been said that the bridegroom has the right to annul the whole, you know, to do the divorce because she hasn't made herself ready. Guys, if you partake of communion, we're about to partake of it. If we partake of that, that bread and the cup, and we remember all three cups, but we drink of it, realizing this is a cup of betrothal. We have a bridegroom who is deeply desirous. He loves you. He's looking for men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation to worship him, to, to, to be with him, to rule and reign with him in the age to come. He wants you. He didn't just save you so you'd escape hell. He saved you so that you could be fully restored to everything that was available in the garden in the beginning. And so the fourth cup, I will take you, Exodus 6, 7, that word take you, actually means in marriage to the Israelites. I will take you for my people and I will be my, your God. 
And you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens or the tolerance of the Egyptians. And then they went to Mount Sinai where it was a wedding feast on Pentecost. And by the way, the gift that he, the price that he paid for you and I was the blood of Jesus and the gift that he gave was the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was the gift of the Spirit of God who was a down payment, a guarantee of what was to come. Basically, the gift means it's a promise. I am coming again for you. I want you. I want you. I mean, if I can speak into the heartbeat of a, of a woman. I have five daughters. I'm finally starting to figure this out. <laughs> but there's a, there's a deep God-made desire for a woman to feel desired, to feel wanted, to feel loved, to feel belonging. God put that in us. He put it in us so that we could have a bridegroom that would begin to fill that desire because we desire to be desired. We are wholly desirable. He loves you, church. And he loves you with a, with a, a bridegroom's love. And so I want to invite us now to partake of communion together. And I don't know, Adam, how we do it. Does everybody go or do we? Okay, so it's all, yep, yeah, so. Yeah, okay, it's right there on each side. So let's go and partake. And then I want us to, just, just hold off for a sec. I want us to just partake of it. Uh, go get your elements, okay? Go get your elements, and then just wait in the seats where you are because I want to take you through what Paul took them through. And, and may the Spirit of God awaken your heart to love. You know, stir me to the place of love. Awaken my heart to love you with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind and all of my strength. Because he... He paid a price that the Lamb of God would receive the reward of His suffering. He paid a price. And He's coming back again, the second advent. You know, He's going to come for a bride without spot, without wrinkle. Who's in love with Him. You know, I do not want to give, and I did not want to give any of my daughters to a man that was not at least their equal. I'm not willing to give my daughter to a guy that doesn't love her, that doesn't desire her, that will not honor her like royalty, that won't take care of her. And the father will not give his son a bride that is not her equal. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the bridegroom, king, judge, the one who has passionate desire in his heart to partake of this anew in the Father's kingdom. He really loves you. He really, really, really loves you. Don't shortchange the blood of Jesus by not dealing with sin issues in your heart. You know, don't shortchange the blood of Jesus by saying, it's okay that me and that person over there in the far corner at least, you know, haven't made the issue right. I realize it's a, it's a journey. Sometimes to forgive doesn't mean that you trust them. And sometimes you don't like them, but you're commanded to love them. The Lord will work out those things. They may or may not be in this room. I'm just hypothetically using this. You know, but we're all family. 
We were family in the beginning with Adam and Eve prior to sin. The Lord will restore. He, Jesus will be the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess His Lordship. He will come back and rule the planet. He's not coming to take sides. He's not going to be liberal, conservative, or NDP. He's the King of glory. And we will all surrender to His Lordship. Because he's worthy. But what he's longing for is a bride who will voluntarily love him. It doesn't mean today that you've got your act together. I don't have my act together, okay? I got, I got stuff that I still need to deal with. Thank you. I've been working on stuff for years and years and years. I'm a lot further ahead than I was five, ten years ago. Talking to Kelly, he said, you look just like you did ten years ago. No, no, I'm different than I am ten years ago. I've dealt with some issues. The new ones have come my way, but there's a sanctification. But he's worth it. He's worth it. And he loves you with an everlasting love. How much does he love you? He stretched out his hands. He died. He chose you. He chose you. So I want to welcome you to stand. You know, again, in, in communion, this is the cup, or in the Passover, this is the cup after supper. This is the that place. But the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which He was betrayed, took bread. And when He'd given thanks, so let's just give thanks, can we? We just thank the Lord for everything He's done. Where He saved you from. He chose you. He chose me. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. When I thought I was undesirable and yet you saw something worth dying for. So when he given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let's remember. Let's remember all three cups, as well as the fourth, which is still to come. remember that by His stripes you were healed. I felt just even driving up that you know, just two words the Lord gave me, but somebody in their ankles and their feet. They had some feet issues or ankle issues. I don't know if anybody here, but I just want to declare healing. I felt it was the right one, actually. The right foot, the right ankle. Healing in the name of Jesus. The glory of God. Just you know, put your hand on it. Declare healing. As well as necks, shoulder, neck areas. Or I speak healing. It's by His stripes. You were healed. It's already been done. It's been finished. Thank you for healing today. Healing in relationships. Healing in finances. God, we receive it by faith. But you finish things before you start them. It goes on, he says, in the same way he took the cup, took the third cup. Also after supper, because it was the third cup that was taken after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So let's partake together. The cup of betrothal. 
Do you say yes to him today? Let's drink it. Just receive that love now. Beautiful one. Jesus, you're beautiful. You desired me when I saw nothing worthwhile in myself. Your love is an everlasting love. You make all things new. Spirit of God, would you cause just the, the revelation of this to go deep in our hearts right now? That you already paid a price. You already shed your blood. We are the bride. You are the bride. Church, catch the fire kitchener. You're the bride. Say yes. Partake of the cup. His future that He's prepared for you is so much greater, so much more fulfilling than anything you could ever do for yourself. We love you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. We have to be out of here today at one. We've gone a little bit over. But you know, I know that Adam and Amy would love it if people could help pick up the chairs and clean. But if somebody wants prayer ministry, or if you want to just even gather in little groups, if you need prayer, and you know, pray for one another. Be the body of Christ. Right? Remember in that same passage, it's like if you don't judge the body rightly. I believe the, one of the greatest things you can do to even prepare your heart is to love others. Love others with the love that He first loved us. You know, the blood has made us all equal. Nobody's any better than anybody else. We're all incredible in this room because the blood has declared what we're worth. So let's bless one another and pray for one another.